Can you imagine living and working without email, social media, apps, a digital calendar, the ability to order food without ever picking up the phone, or any of the other technological innovations we use to make our lives easier and more efficient, or as simple entertainment? Just as we are diverse, so are the ways we make use of technology. So whether you spend your free time scrolling through Instagram, watching YouTube videos, Netflixing, checking out the latest viral TikTok, or listening to podcasts like this one, so thank you, chances are technology is a huge part of your life. And just so you know, when it comes to technology, I hardly understand any of it. But what I do understand and what I intend to share with you are some of the ways in which technology can both reinforce and mitigate bias in our workplaces. I'm Darylise Lyons, a highly inept user of technology, who still keeps a handwritten paper calendar and writes each of these episodes longhand before typing them into my computer. Before we delve into today's topic, I'd like to acknowledge that I am speaking to you from the ancestral lands of the Lenape people and to thank Indigenous people, past, present, and future, for their resilience and their contributions to a nation that was built on stolen land using stolen labor. This is Episode 8 of Season 3 of the Demystifying Diversity Podcast, brought to you in partnership with Temple University's Fox School of Business Center for Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture, SEDWIC. This is Moving Beyond Biases, the Technological Approach. So is technology biased? Well, yes and no. Munir Manvawala, Professor of Management Information Systems, Milton F. Staffer, Senior Research Fellow and Executive Director of the Institute for Business and Information Technology at Temple University's Fox School of Business, had some thoughts on the subject. I don't agree that technology is biased. I think the people who use technology can be biased. Technology doesn't care, right? You can use it for good or for evil. Uh, I'm from that school of... uh, so. I'm not dismissing it. I'm saying the bias is still, at the end of the day, not the the tech, it's the human beings. They're the source of all the bias. As a lifelong technology enthusiast, Munir is admittedly biased in favor of technology. But he makes a valid point. People create technology, and people use technology, and so certainly technologies can and do contain built-in biases. But technology can also be used to identify and mitigate the biases in humans. Before delving into the problems that biased technology can and does perpetuate, I'd like to start by sharing some of the ways technology is being utilized to expose systemic bias, discrimination, and injustice. For instance, technological applications have provided irrefutable evidence of gender bias in the workplace. Different genders are not paid equally for the same jobs. That's kind of things that data can often reveal. And learning to Look at things through data in whatever field you are. And also understand how different parties reason from data is a very powerful, good learning. And learning to ask questions wherever you are. Could we look into these kind of things through data? Those are just the kind of things that can be really eye-openers that then start creating change. That was Alexei Altinen. Assistant Professor of Management Information Systems at Temple University's Fox School of Business, who has over 20 years' experience in digital innovation. 
And yes, data can be illuminating. And it is also very difficult to discount. When people come forward with personal stories of having been marginalized or discriminated against, there are often those who might hear their experiences and dismiss them as individual cases as opposed to patterns. On the other hand, it's almost impossible to individualize and dismiss the experiences of larger populations of people when, with the assistance of technology, we can identify consistent patterns of people being treated differently based on elements of their identity. Charlotte Alexander holds the Connie D. and Ken McDaniel Women Lead Chair as an Associate Professor of Law and Analytics at the Colleges of Business and Law at Georgia State University, where she uses computational methods to study legal text with a particular focus on understanding how courts process and resolve employment disputes and other types of civil lawsuits. She also founded and directs the university's Legal Analytics Lab, which works towards a legal system that embraces data to solve intractable problems and create a more just society. Charlotte has been using text mining technology to examine the ways in which individuals of different genders are spoken about in recommendation letters. The main project I've done recently is this project about recommendation letters. And I was interested to see if I could use my text analysis work or my text analysis methodologies to analyze the letters that are submitted for men and women or applicants who identify as men and women. And so I got access to a set of recommendation letters that were submitted for anesthesia resident applications. The narrow setting, and we could talk about how generalizable it is to other employment settings, but I was interested in, in the inputs that go in because my understanding about bias is that it's tricky, it's slippery, it's implicit. So even if the hiring entity is themselves not biased, right? Assuming that, but the inputs they're getting about their candidates have these patterns by gender or race, then, you know, what does that mean, right? So that was kind of the general set of questions that I went into the project with. And I ended up finding that when I studied these letters, there were different topics that were discussed in the letters written for male applicants versus female applicants. And the men's letters tended to have more discussion of technical anesthesiology type procedures and professionalism than the women's letters did. If you follow that through, and even if the hiring folks, the people doing the decision-making, even if you took the gender and the names off of the applicant letters, they would be presented with a set of applicants who have more discussion of anesthesia skill and a set of applicants that don't. And that ultimately, if they select on that, then they would end up using more men than women. Again, this was one anesthesia residency program and recommendation letters aren't necessarily used in that many hiring processes, but references are. So my takeaway was that these sorts of analyses like I did with the recommendation letters are not that hard. And it's something that companies could start to implement with letters if they use letters or the transcripts of reference conversations and just start to flag whether there are patterns 
in how applicants are described by race or by gender or by age and at least have their eyes open to it. That's not to say we shouldn't anonymize applications. There has been a decent amount of work showing that even just anonymizing up applications would be really helpful. So just taking people's names off of it. So you just make a decision based on, on their credentials, on their skills, on their work experience. Even if that doesn't necessarily, that doesn't necessarily mean these are going to be the people that are hired, but at least it evens the playing field because those are the people who get to the interview stage. Those are the people who get to even have a conversation with another person and explain who they are because so much of hiring is personal in a way that it probably shouldn't be. And so that kind of thing would help not just immigrants, it would help any minority group, right? And so that's something that would make hiring and the labor market a little bit more equal, and that would be great. That was Rebecca Tesfai an associate professor and researcher at Temple University who focuses her research on the experiences of Black immigrants in America and elsewhere. Rebecca's research provides a comprehensive account of Black immigrants' economic, political, and residential incorporation over time and across place. Using quantitative methods, she studies Black immigrants' occupational, wage, voting, housing, and residential patterns and uses these analysis to re-examine our theoretical understanding of both immigrant incorporation and racial stratification. As her and Charlotte's interviews demonstrate, these issues are complicated. The ways people are received, perceived, filtered, and evaluated has implications from recruitment to retirement. And if we can utilize technology to open our eyes to the reality that there are tangible and undeniable differences in how people are being treated, then maybe we can implement technological and human interventions to bring about greater equity. But one of the problems with using data to inspire positive change is that often underrepresented and marginalized individuals are left out of the calculations. They're not counted, which can make it seem as though their experiences don't count. Here's Rebecca again. Black immigrants aren't really researched very much, and I think it's important to look at these under-researched groups and understand that immigrants are not homogenous and race and ethnicity and even distance from home country can play a real role in the experiences that they have in the United States and also the different types of choices they might make, I guess, in terms of housing and, and working because there's different possibilities for whether or not you can go back and forth and whether or not you might spend your whole life here. So it's, I, I thought it would be, this is a group that, that people didn't really pay attention to as much, at least until more recently. And I thought it was important to do that. It's important to utilize technology to illuminate social realities, such as discrimination, marginalization, bias, and harassment. And then going even further, we can not only look at the past impact, but can leverage technology to determine the future impact of these social realities on multiple dimensions, including everything from quality of life issues to large-scale questions of profitability. There was a study in Canada by one of the banks there that actually like quantified the amount of money that was lost to the Canadian economy because immigrants were not earning as much as they could. And I believe there was a similar study in the United States. Actually, I can look that up. 
Rebecca was able to look it up, thanks to technology. So Royal Bank of Canada found that the immigrant wage disadvantage costs Canada as much as $50 billion annually, and they attribute it to the disparity to employers' inability to evaluate foreign degrees or work experience, and they wanted to put a system in place to address that. That's part of it, but it's not all of it because there's racial wage gaps as well. And so that's the one in the United States Citigroup did one on racial disparities. And they said eliminating Black disparities in wages and housing credit 20 years ago could have added $2.7 trillion in income and $218 billion to the GDP. Having the ability to quantify the impact of bias using technology, then also using technology to disseminate those research findings, has transformed both how companies do business and with whom consumers will choose to do business. Here's Munir again. Almost every company, I'm sure we can think of counterexamples, but the majority of companies will have to think about their societal role because I'm not talking about the data privacy part. That's a small piece of it. Because we know, you know, and I know, there is this large number of of companies who are not even consumer-facing, who are collecting data on all of us. We're all going to start asking questions. What are you doing in the community? How are you influencing my town, my street? Because in some sense, these companies are benefiting. They were benefiting before too, but now it's much more obvious to a, a larger segment of the population. So I think every company that's of reasonable size will have to think about how they communicate with their external constituents. And I don't mean the stockholders. I mean the communities they live in and uh, how they give back, how they engage. And it can't just be a, uh, a checkbox, which, is, which it has been for so long. Because with data, you can also figure out if when somebody is doing it as a checkbox or whether you're actually doing something significant. There's no place to hide, right? We demystify diversity making work safe for you and me shoulder to shoulder we embark invite the light to send the dark let's embrace one another single colleagues working mothers people of all points of view can we see each other we should be asking questions of companies but how much should companies know about us Most people are aware that in the United States, companies are governed by various consumer protection laws that make it illegal for them to do things like sell confidential consumer information or disclose private customer details or make our credit card or medical information public. But did you know that employees aren't extended the same privacy rights as consumers? According to an article by CNBC, In 2019, 22% of organizations worldwide were monitoring employee movement, 17% were monitoring work computer usage, and 16% were monitoring their employees' calendars. While you could argue that employers should have the right to make sure employees are properly utilizing their working hours, what about the data employers are collecting that has nothing to do with workplace performance? Employers often have access to information that they can utilize to single people out for surveillance and scrutiny. Many employers know our race, religion, gender, sex, age, family composition, and medical information. And again, that might seem like no big deal. 
But did you know that some employers are collecting data about employee menstruation? I didn't until I spoke with Liz Brown, Associate Professor Law and Taxation at Bentley University, who earned her BA from Harvard College and her JD from Harvard Law School. Liz represented Fortune 100 companies for 13 years prior to joining Bentley's faculty. The Femtech Paradox is a paper that I wrote about workplace monitoring and specifically biometric or biological monitoring. So when you think about Fitbit or an Apple Watch, it monitors your heart rate. That's a very familiar biometric monitoring that most people are like, oh yeah, that's good. That's cool. I like having something on my wrist that tells me how many steps I've taken or how my heart rate is doing. Potentially really helpful. What's dangerous though, is when your employer has access to a wide range of health data about you. Again, because your health insurance is provided through work, that could be really powerful. So Five years ago, 10 years ago, when I first started writing about biometric monitoring at work, the idea that your boss might have access to your health data that was collected from your Apple Watch or your Fitbit was just shocking to people. And now I think a lot of people are like, yeah, that's reasonable. I don't mind so much if my employer knows how healthy I am in terms of my physical activity there's an increasing acceptance of that kind of health data being accessible to an employer. And that's shocking enough. (laughs) But here's the other kind of biometric monitoring that is becoming really popular. As part of the workplace wellness programs that a lot of employers provide, they're not just providing Fitbits and Apple Watches and health data and apps that can track your overall health. A lot of employers are now providing access to Femtech, which is apps and devices that monitor women's reproductive health. So if you're a young woman in the workplace and you are trying to get pregnant or you're trying not to get pregnant, you might find it really valuable if you got access through your job to one of these premium period tracker apps or a suite of programs that could help you start a family if you're having trouble conceiving. So employers see it as a plus. Employers see it as a recruiting tool. A lot of people really value that kind of information, having access to those apps. And where you draw the line between what's personal on your computer and what's related to your employer or visible to your employer on your computer can get really tricky. So the consequence of this is that you have an increasing number of women who are using femtech through a work provided portal what kind of privacy do they have in the reproductive health information that their employer is getting through this portal it is not clear at all that that information is kept private because what we think of as the privacy laws regarding health information like hipaa most people think about hipaa most people do not understand that hipaa does not provide very much protection at all Well, and isn't HIPAA really, it applies to physicians' offices or therapists, or it applies to your healthcare provider, but not to your, I mean, if your employer is getting information, they're just getting information. It doesn't preclude them from doing anything 
with it. Although arguably you could sue if you could prove that they were acting based on that. But there's nothing to guarantee that an employer couldn't let someone go because they realize that they're trying to conceive and it might not be good timing for the organization or those kinds of things. Yeah, causation is definitely a problem. But the bigger problem is that it's not possible for an individual to actually sue anybody under HIPAA. HIPAA does not provide a private right of action. If you want to sue your employer because your employer has violated HIPAA, good luck to you. You have to get the Department of Health and Human Services to file that lawsuit for you. So when we think of privacy rights, I think most people have an inflated sense of how much health privacy they actually have. But as you just suggested, the consequences can be really dire. As a woman in the workplace, the last thing we want our employers to know is when we have our period or when we're trying to get pregnant or when we are pregnant because of the rampant gender discrimination that still exists at work and discrimination against mothers. So this Femtech app has the potential to make that most private information visible to your employer. And that worries me. It worries me too. It should worry all of us because whether technology is biased or not, it can be wielded as a weapon by people. I think there's a real danger of unconscious bias when we know more about people. And one of the things that is challenging about coming back to work after the pandemic is that so many of us have opened our homes to our employers because we've been participating by Zoom. And so the line between what's private information and what is workplace appropriate or workplace related or limited to the workplace is blurry. And that can be good. I think that can be humanizing. I think there are a lot of potentially great consequences of that. Not so many of them apply to women, I would say, because I think that we still tend to be penalized more than men do when our kids are running around in the background of a meeting. When a man is interviewed on the BBC and his kid walks in, it's adorable. When a woman is having a meeting and her kid walks in, it's why can't you control your kid? This blurring of the space between public and private, between home life and work life, is challenging and complicated. To the extent that employees can make those choices and draw those lines, what do you want to show? What do you want to share? I think that's really important. And to me, the danger of this increased health monitoring at work, including femtech monitoring, is that it tends to take the choice away from the employee. What employers will say is, well, you don't have to agree to the healthcare package. Okay, don't you? Do you have a real choice as to whether you can use healthcare provided by your employer or not? Can you use an entirely different device for your home life that has no crossover whatsoever to your work life? That's challenging, increasingly challenging. These past few years have really illuminated how important it is to care for our health. The place where I go for all my health and wellness supplements is Vita Supreme. Vita Supreme uses all organic ingredients and has a wide range of supplement options that can help with immune support, heart health, energy, mental health, pain relief, sleep, anti-aging, digestion, diabetes, and more. Their products have helped me reduce joint pain and increase vibrancy. And if you read their online testimonials, you'll find glowing endorsements from their customers who at every 
every age and stage of life are feeling better than ever. Vita Supreme believes that health radiates from the inside out, and I can tell you from personal experience that their supplements have made a positive difference in my life. To receive 10% off your first order, go to vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity. Your discount will be applied at checkout. There's no code required. Also, as a special offer with your first order, you can receive a free 15-minute coaching session with one of their wellness experts to find out more about what you can do to improve your health and your habits. Just send your name and preferred contact information to support at vitasupreme.com. Once again, to get 10% off your first order, go to vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity. And to receive your free coaching session, email support at vitasupreme.com and tell them the Demystifying Diversity podcast sent you. Through innovative and dynamic educational initiatives, Temple University's Fox School of Business provides students with real-world, local, and global business opportunities. At the Fox School of Business, you can choose from a wide range of undergraduate, graduate, certificate, and continuing educational programs. Whatever your academic and professional path, you'll learn practical strategies for workplace success at a university that is committed to encouraging and respecting diversity in all forms and perspectives. The Fox School of Business, which includes the Center for Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture, has built an inclusive, welcoming environment where everyone is emboldened to reach their full potential. So if you want to be in a learning environment that will empower you to cultivate your capacity for empathy and profitability, go to fox.temple.edu slash DDP for more on how you can learn from world-class DEI-focused faculty and become an inclusive leader in the workplace. So if you want to be in a learning environment that will empower you to cultivate your capacity for empathy and profitability, go to fox.temple.edu slash DDP for more on how you can learn from world-class DEI-focused faculty and become an inclusive leader in the workforce. With options for students and professionals at every stage of life, including undergraduate, graduate, certificate, and continuing educational programs, the Fox School of Business has something just right for you. So make sure to check out fox.temple.edu slash ddp to learn more. Just because technology can be utilized to reinforce biases doesn't mean we should develop an adversarial relationship with it. In fact, the more we know about how technology works and about our rights, the more we can empower ourselves and each other. The only problem is that understandings of technology tend to be unfairly skewed to advantage those with greater socioeconomic, gender, racial, and educational privilege. Access to technology is inequitable, and attitudes around technological competence vary greatly along identity lines. At the beginning of this episode, I told you that when it comes to technology, I'm highly inept. But is that a defeatist attitude? Yulia Barnakova, the digital innovation lead for the consulting practice of Hydric and Struggles, a global executive search and leadership advisory firm who oversees digital dexterity development, would say so. In fact, she gave an entire TEDx talk titled, Think You're Not Tech Savvy? Here's Why You Are, which is about how we should stop doubting our capacity to engage with technology, something she herself has done. 
I never really thought of myself as a quote unquote technology person. And I think a lot of people experience this is unless you work officially in IT or in a role that has digital in the title or, you know, like a chief technology officer, or chief digital officer. And this is kind of a common, common challenge is unless we feel like we officially are in that world, a lot of times we self-exclude ourselves. And that's exactly what was happening to me is when I entered the, the business world, any new technology that came my way, um, including smartphones, by the way, I avoided using as long as possible. I almost was proud to be the laggard. I'll be the last holdout. Let's see how long I can go without using a particular technology, because that's what fit with my label of myself is, you know, because I'm not a quote unquote technology person, let me be the best at being a non-technology person. And so that actually stifled a lot of opportunities for me because I wasn't able to experience the digital world in its full scale. Considering that these days, Yulia is the digital innovation lead for Hydric and Struggles, she is undeniably a technology person, as well as an advocate for tech inclusion for individuals of all identities. Likewise, Charlotte didn't see herself as a technology person until relatively recently. So my work on data, it does not come out of my own training. I'm trained as a lawyer. And as a kid, I always thought of myself as being really good at reading and writing, but not good at math. And I don't know where I got that idea because as a full-grown adult, as a professional well down the path in my career as a legal academic, I have found that I love math and I love coding and I love all of this set of technical skills. And I wish as a little girl that I had had messaging that, no, what are you talking about? Go do this. You know, this is for you as well. And I'm not saying my teacher said, oh, no, you're a girl. Don't do this. But I'm saying that that I think that as I have made this expansion to take on new methods, I found myself in sometimes uncomfortable settings of not knowing what I'm talking about and being the person in the room who knows the least and having to sort of stand up and be comfortable and confident in my own lack of knowledge, but say, you know, I'm bringing a lot to the table, but I I may not fully understand this machine learning algorithm yet, but I'll get there. And so I think that it's been an interesting exercise in being vulnerable about my lack of knowledge, but confident in my ability to learn and confident in what I can bring to the table, which as a professional woman, I have historically seen being vulnerable as actually not being advantageous for my career. You know, I needed to come in and prove my competence and prove my ability and prove my smarts. I think a decade ago, I probably wouldn't have had the confidence to not be the person in the room who knows things. But as I have advanced through my career, I've realized that doesn't matter. And I need, I'm doing good and I am pushing the boundaries of my field by engaging methodologically in these new areas. And I'm smart enough to figure a lot of it out. And if I don't know it, then I'll just go find somebody who does and partner with them. It's been interesting. And I think being a woman has been tied up in a lot of it. And I'm proud of myself for you know, getting to this point, I have to say. 
If we want to utilize technology to dismantle social biases, we have to encourage individuals who may be underrepresented in tech to step into leadership roles within the tech industry. That was what Emma Bloxberg Fire Ovid, known as Emma BF, and I spoke about in our interview. Emma is a speaker, trainer, and leadership coach for women and non-binary folks in the technology industry. She has worked with hundreds of leaders to accelerate their careers, maximize their confidence, and amplify their impact, and has made it her professional mission to expand leadership opportunities for individuals of color, women, and non-binary folks in tech. There's this perception out there that when I think of a leader, and especially a leader in tech, what image comes to mind for you? Oh, yeah, 1,000%. It's like a young, white, cool California, Silicon Valley kind of dude. Exactly. And that's the people I work with think of that as well. And so, so many of them have never, they've never seen people like them in positions of power, or if they have, it's not in a leadership style that they can naturally connect with. Because so often, especially in the leadership development space, it's teaching women in particular, how to be more assertive how to be more direct, be more like a man, essentially. That's not to suggest that there's anything wrong with being a man or that existing leaders aren't doing incredible work in tech innovation. However, if one of the goals of technology is to create greater equity, we have to make space at the various decision-making tables for those with experiences that are underrepresented in the industry to identify areas in which technology is reinforcing existing inequities. There's not one A plus for what leadership looks like. And I see that as part of the problem is we have socialized and incentivized and monetized one style of leadership. Amanda Arias, Director of People and Culture at Jubilee Media, who prior to her current position accumulated more than 10 years of experience helping growth-centric startups build high-performing teams, operates from the motto, treat people like people. Amanda spent much of her career working for tech startups prior to coming on board with Jubilee, and she told me that her voice and her contributions weren't as valued by her prior employers as they are now. I primarily was working for tech startups, and I think everybody can agree that a lot of those startups, not all of them, but have a bro culture. I am a Mexican-American woman. I'm going to be 36 years old in a couple months. And, you know, I've been in this industry, in the startup industry for 10 years. So starting in my, you know, mid twenties, really not having a strong, my family doesn't come from like a lot of academia. I just made my way into things over time. And so for me, it was a lot of, at first thinking that these cultures that I was walking into were sort of the norm. And and that was what I had to adhere to. And then you meet a lot of different women, you meet a lot of different people, you start recognizing things that you originally didn't think were wrong, and you sort of grow. So I've come from cultures where women, and particularly women of color, were not valued in in leadership positions. Recently, you know, I worked in a a corporation, I'm obviously not going to name the name, where there was a lot of face value of having a woman of color in a leadership role, but behind the scenes, there wasn't any real value or respect that existed. And so those kinds of environments 
push you as a, as a human. They push you as a person and, and really make you stronger in a way. And so for me coming to Jubilee and, and really understanding through a very long interview process that this was a place where I would be able to really be my authentic self and, and was a place where my background and, and differences would be celebrated as opposed to used as a, as a PR piece. <laughs> if we want to create environments where technology is used in service of diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility, and belonging, we have to see technology as a reflection of society as well as a tool that can be used to change it. Hey listeners, Zach here. Darylise and I are so grateful you've tuned in to season three of the Demystifying Diversity podcast. You probably know by now that we've partnered with Temple University's Fox School of Business to bring you this special season dedicated to DEI in the workplace. With that in mind, we ask that you send us your work-related DEI questions by calling 844-888-8148. Just leave a message with your question. Or send us a note through our website, www.demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. As always, we'll be joined by some amazing guest experts and thought leaders who can also weigh in on whatever questions you have. Again, the number is 844-888-8148 or message us through our website, demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. Who knows, your voice or your question may just make it into one of our Q&A episodes. Happy listening. Here's Sharona Pearl, an associate professor of bioethics and history at Drexel University, a historian theorist of the face and body, who has authored numerous books, scholarly essays, and freelance articles. Most justice-oriented communities that are really advocating for change in the algorithmic bias, which is to say the bias that's actually built into a lot of these technological systems, the way that automatic soap readers can't read dark skin, for example, right? Just the kind of thing that people who program stuff themselves are biased and then it gets carried on to the technology, which we saw in the face recognition software where the starting data sets originally were so biased towards white faces. Like if you were using Fortune 500 CEOs, right? then you're going to get a lot of false positives from the people who are not represented in that original data set because they just didn't have the framework. So if they saw a Black woman's face, which was the one that had the most false positives, it's going to say, yes, that is the one that you want me to find, even if it's not a match, right? So that's an algorithmic bias. So partly as a result of just significantly greater increased access to photos of people's faces through the internet and mechanisms that can scrape all of these photos. A lot of those false positives problems have been reduced significantly, not eliminated, but reduced significantly. In 2019, a report came out from the National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST, that received a lot of national news coverage because it conclusively demonstrated that many of the world's top facial recognition algorithms were not just biased along lines of age, race, and ethnicity, but were extremely biased. NIST reported that algorithms could misidentify members of some groups up to 100 times more often than others. It should be obvious that there is a direct relationship between what technology reports and how the people who create and program technology see, filter, and interpret the world. It's a symbiotic relationship. Technology drives human behavior, and humans teach technology how to behave. 
Slobodan Vucetic is the director of the Center for Hybrid Intelligence and a professor in the Department of Computer and Information Sciences at Temple University. Slobodan is spearheading a multidisciplinary team at Temple that was awarded $2.3 million from the National Science Foundation to develop software that will provide job assistance for those with neurodevelopmental disabilities. He explained how the relationship between humans programming technology and technology impacting humans works. In order for AI to work, we need somebody or something to teach the AI to do what it's doing. So, for example, there is nowadays AI that, you know, you have a, you have a camera and then you can record somebody, you know, somebody's face or somebody's video. And uh, there is AI that will tell you what is the emotion of a person that right now is, you know, in front of the camera. Uh, what are the uses of it? Again, there are many uses. But basically, in order for the AI software to be able to do it, it needs to be trained. And the way that the standard practices. Uh, to provide it with a lot of examples of, uh, you know, happy humans and sad humans and neutral humans. And then in order to get that information, those examples, you have to ask actually humans to judge other humans and to provide feedback to the AI system. And then AI system is able to get trained. Humans evaluate other humans, then train technology to do the same. But what happens when our perceptions about each other are wrong? Alexi told me about a study he and his colleagues conducted, during which they used computer code to sift through 130 million articles to determine whether or not there was gender bias in how authors were listed during article attribution credits. Alexi said that even before he and his colleagues began their study, they realized that the study would be impacted by gender bias. When we were doing this, we realized that that API, and then we did some manual attribution of gender, obviously is based only on, it only attributes binary gender. And we realized that it's an interesting question. I think we can justify it in a way that if we can show with binary gender that there is a systematic bias against, for instance, female academics, then that result should, we can make a fair assumption that, that it generalizes to even if we would have more nuanced way of recording gender. So we can justify it for the purposes we use it, even if we have become painfully aware that it's very coarse way of recording gender. That's one thing. But then another realization, which is a fascinating question to me, and I'm sure there is a research about this, but it's one thing how we ourselves attribute our kind of, how do we ourselves identify? But when we categorize other people, we still tend to very easily fall into this binary gender attribution. So there are two things here, how we identify ourselves and how others identify us. And often it's that the, how others identify what matters. Issues of self-identification versus other identification are critically important. So important, in fact, that in and of themselves, they could be an entire podcast episode, if not an entire season. And they come up when thinking about gender, race, disability, culture, religion, sexual orientation, and a whole host of other identities. While it's true that by recognizing patterns, technology can expose bias, when used irresponsibly, it can reinforce existing power structures, thereby intensifying inequities. 
Sylvia Massiero told me about how biometric infrastructures led to increased food insecurity for already vulnerable populations. Sylvia is an associate professor of information systems at the University of Oslo and the author of more than 20 peer-reviewed works in the domain of information and communication technology for development, also known as ICT4D. Sylvia also co-edited the open access work COVID-19 from the margins, Pandemic Invisibilities, Policies, and Resistance in the Datafied Society. I've found that these biometric infrastructures unfortunately tend to reproduce inequality patterns that were already there and even create new ones. For example, in Southern India, one thing we found is that making the delivery of food is an essential right, the right to food to below poverty line people that have always had that right under a national scheme has resulted in exclusion of those that could not authenticate, of those that the biometric machine did not recognize, of those whose name was different in between the register and the, and the spelling made in the district office. So huge exclusions under that aspect. Sylvia's research focuses on the global south, those areas and nations that have been disadvantaged and disenfranchised by capitalist nations. And so you may be tempted to think it doesn't apply to nations that are quote-unquote thriving as a result of capitalism. But that assumption would be incorrect. Every year, millions of Americans experience food insecurity. And those of us that have daily on-demand access to food are often participating in inequitable systems and are doing so through the use of technology. I sat down with Stuart Kreintz to talk about his experience delivering food for a popular food delivery service during the pandemic. Stu is a mindset success and relationship coach who works with people individually and in groups to empower them into ownership of their lives. Before stepping into coaching, Stu had a successful career in sales and marketing within professional baseball, having the opportunity to work for the New York Yankees and the Atlanta Braves, as well as several affiliated minor league clubs. He is also the production and development assistant for the Demystifying Diversity podcast. DoorDash, Uber Eats, any of these are super simple. Because you are not picking up a passenger, there is basically no screening process. You literally download the app, sign up. I did have to provide a photo of my driver's license. You go through a air quote screening process that for me was only an hour. And then from there, I'm able to just jump in and go. And so what happens is you just turn on the app. It does put you in a zone, like a geographical zone from which it wants you to stay in and, and will have you orient your driving around, which I think is good in that it will save you some gas. It isn't quite like Uber or Lyft where you'll go way off into the hinterlands to drive somebody wherever they got to go. But otherwise, you just turn on the app and what it'll do is ping you. You'll get a little audio notification that there's a pickup that they've assigned for you and it'll tell you where you're going how far the distance is, and it'll give you an approximation of how much money you can expect to receive. And in my experience, it's usually around eight or nine dollars, give or take. Eight or nine dollars per hour, did you say? Oh, or no, per no, per, per delivery, roughly. And then on a really good, really efficient day, you can do about two, two and a half deliveries per hour. 
So you do stand to make around $20 an hour or slightly more depending, but then there are a lot of factors that are involved. Like that's not counting gas. That's not counting any maintenance that you need to do on your vehicle. It's not counting. Are you driving at 10 AM when there's not a lot of demand or are you driving at noon or dinner time? And so there's a very real opportunity cost of the times that you're going to make the most money are probably the times you also want to be spending at home with your loved ones, having dinner with them, but instead you're out doing that. So there are real trade-offs for sure. One of the trade-offs can be that people sacrifice their community-minded values out of the need to provide for themselves and their loved ones. Stu shared that in the gig economy, as drivers evaluate the risks versus rewards of saying yes to certain types of delivery jobs, socioeconomic profiling is prevalent. It's not until you actually deliver the food that it tells you how much money you actually got on that order. This is a PSA. Please tip your DoorDasher. Please tip your Uber Eats driver because I have seen that about 45 to 48% of what you make as a driver is from the tip. So you're actually making a very small percentage of the money off of the actual food. Now, because this is the Demystifying Diversity podcast, here's where this starts to get really hairy. And this is where this actually starts to create some of the technologically imposed biases that have been discussed on this show and other episodes. So what happens and what people will start doing is they'll start to see pretty quickly that when you are driving and delivering in the less affluent areas of whatever city you're in, you are much less likely to receive a tip just because people maybe don't have the money. There is an inflation, an inflated price on the food in the app inherently. So people are much less likely to tip And as I've stated, if the tip is about 45 to 50% of what you're going to make, significantly less money in your pocket if they don't. And then because of that, people stop accepting orders in the less affluent communities in a city. And as an added double whammy from experience, the state of the economy, some of the restaurants that I would pick up from would be so understaffed that I would end up losing a lot of time because I'd often have to wait in the drive-through to pick up the orders because I couldn't staff the actual like restaurant. And so I've had situations where, you know, I've waited 45 minutes in a drive-through for one thing, a chicken and made $2 and 50 cents on it for basically an hour of my time. And as somebody like any human being, we're not doing DoorDash for out of the goodness of our heart. We're doing it because we're trying to pay our bills, trying to get ahead, trying to make extra money for whatever our goals are. Individuals who work within the gig economy under a fee-for-service structure are trying to make money to support themselves and their families. At the same time, if they begin to turn down orders in certain areas, that means that individuals and families living in those areas start to be denied access to food delivery, which then makes their lives more difficult. 
So let's say I'm living in an area of town. I'm in a socioeconomic stratosphere where I, I don't have the money maybe to tip, right? Like I'm, I just am not in that category where I can spend more than what I have. So then let's say I have to either, okay, I'm not getting things delivered to me and probably shouldn't be because then that person who's driving for DoorDash or Grubhub or Uber Eats who is also probably in a similar situation as me, right? Who's like hustling for money, who doesn't have a whole lot. Then I have to take an hour out of my day to go and get the whatever I would need to get. Or people might be like, well, you could kick it home, but that also takes time. And that also takes, you know, grocery money, et cetera. I think what we're talking about is some of the reasons, some of the ways in which systemic disparities actually keep people stuck in cycles of poverty. Because if you don't have, if I'm spending seven hours a week on food procurement that someone with more money and more privilege and more time doesn't have to spend those seven hours a week, they could be spending those seven hours doing like entrepreneurial endeavors or whatever. Right. So I, like, I think it's what you're sharing. It both reinforces disparities and speaks to disparities that already exist. Yeah, and I, I a thousand percent agree. And to be clear, I'm not trying to demonize anybody on any side. It's just kind of like an unfortunate illustration of the problem you just outlined. And on one of the deliveries that I think you can very clearly argue I was not adequately compensated for the time that I put in, you know, it was a situation where the person request that you physically hand the food to them, which is fine. It's part of the job. They didn't tip, but they opened the door and it was very clearly a mom home alone with multiple kids. And I very clearly saved this woman a lot of time in her day because I delivered her hot food for her kids that she didn't have to cook or go out there and prepare she gets to take advantage of a service like that when she needs it, regardless of background or race or socioeconomic standing. Like that is actually, I think, technology at its absolute best. I really do. Even at its absolute best, technology can reinforce existing inequities. But that doesn't mean it always has to. The more invested we can become in using technology to restructure society in more equitable ways, the more we can use it not to perpetuate problems, but to change society for the better. Here's Alexi again. We tend to replicate all kinds of biases we have in society, whereas we could also think how we use technology. We should always think how we use technology to mitigate those biases. Just as an example, I, yesterday I tried out if you uh, do Google image search for uh, boss or CEO, you get pictures of a uh, white male. And if you do image search for uh, secretary or assistant, you can guess what kind of pictures you get. So somebody might say that it's just reflecting our society, but we could do so much better. Like, wh why do we just have to reflect these biases when we, we could use technology to do something to them? In my conversation with Sharona about how to reduce bias in technological surveillance and facial recognition apps, she made it clear that intervention is required on multiple levels. The other piece of it, and here I'm drawing heavily on the work of scholar Os Keys, who's written really tremendous stuff about this, is that even as we reduce the bias in the systems, 
through the software. The hardware itself also is subject to structural bias. So it's not just a question of making sure we don't falsely identify people, in particular people of color, as having been the people in question for committing crimes or whatever surveillance mechanism you're doing. But the practice of surveillance itself is biased, right? Governments deciding who we should be watching is biased. Borders determining who's valuable and who isn't is biased. So it's not just, okay, let's fix the mistakes in the tech and we're going to be good to go now. Let's actually spend some time disentangling these broader structures. Broad structures indeed. Centuries of structural inequities program bias into humans, who then program that bias into technology, then employ that technology in inequitable ways. It's a vicious and seemingly never-ending cycle. But again, tech can also be used to mitigate bias. For example, Sohil Gilly is an assistant professor of marketing at Yale School of Management, whose main areas of research are quantitative marketing and empirical industrial organization. His most recent research has focused on the determination of prices in vertical markets, as well as two-sided markets. Sohil has also been conducting research around the subject of algorithmic justice, and he shared with me that there are strategies that we can utilize to program technology so it improves social outcomes. And while there are many examples of how this may play out, the example he gave was of race and recidivism. In order to mitigate or eliminate discrimination, maybe the idea of making your algorithms blind to features such as race, gender, et cetera, is not the best idea. So that's where it starts. Because when you think about this, one easy possible way to eliminate discrimination is for algorithms to not be allowed to look at information such as gender or race when they make decisions. It could even in the beginning be thought of as all that is needed. But when you think a little more deeply, it should be clear that that's not the case. Because in some sense, many other things could proxy for it. For example, let me, let me give a simple example. Imagine that you would like to use an algorithm based on a person, like somebody who's been arrested, based on that person's demographic, like or any sort of piece of information that you have about them, to see whether or not they are likely to reoffend if you let them leave, either on a bail or just without a bail. And imagine you run an analysis, and it turns out that all else equal, if this person is African-American, they are more likely to reoffend compared to a white person with the exact same socioeconomic characteristics. And think about this. This could simply be because this African-American person is more likely to be discriminated and like be rearrested in an unfair way. That's your historical data, right? Exactly, compared to somebody else who looks exactly the same other than race, this person is more likely to be arrested. And your data shows that this person is more likely to reoffend. So then one possible thing to do would be to say, our algorithm is not going to look at race. So problem solved. But, so this is where the sort of the tricky part comes in. When you think about it, we also know that in America, on the average, African-Americans are, you know, lower income, like a lower income part of the population. So the thing is that when you train an algorithm, so to speak, to best predict the probability of a reoffense, 
that algorithm tries its best to match the data. So if African-Americans have been re-arrested more once they have been out, whether or not it was a re-offense or just like in they have been arrested in an unfair way, the algorithm tries to catch that. So if you do not allow for use of race in order, the algorithm cannot attribute it to race, but the algorithm could try to proxy for it, so to speak. For example, imagine if you are lower income, you are more likely to reoffend to some extent. But then because the variable race is not available to the algorithm, the algorithm might give a much higher weight to income than it should have originally because black people are both more likely to be arrested and more likely to be lower income. Then the algorithm is going to say income is very important, even though it may not have been as important. So by overemphasizing, by overestimating the weight on income, the algorithm tries in some sense to sneak back in the idea that black people are more likely to reoffend. So Heal told me that when data inputs are biased, data outputs are also biased, a phenomenon he referred to as garbage in, garbage out. So rather than creating garbage data, he and his fellow researchers set out to come up with a way to make algorithms work to mitigate structural bias and contribute to greater social justice. Explicit discrimination is when you do account for these variables. When you do not, because of what I told you, discrimination is there but becomes latent. It becomes in the form of the algorithm assigning higher or lower weights to other things in order to get back, to smuggle back in the effect of race, gender, et cetera. So how do you deal with that? That was our question. And let me tell you right off the bat that there are multiple solutions offered for this. How to deal with the issue of fairness. We are not the first people to think about this. We're not offering the only solution that was offered, but we're offering our solution. And I think it has some features that are important. So let me tell you what it is, what the solution is, and then I'm going to tell you a little bit about what is at least one main feature that it has, which I like. So the solution is, what we call it is train then mask. Namely, what we propose is for the algorithm to not omit variables such as race, gender, etc. in the training phase, in the process of estimating how much different things matter compared to each other, but only eliminate it, only mask it at the time of decision. So let me try to explain it using the same example that I explained before. What we suggest is that you should not drop race in the analysis of, in trying to have them to sort of train a model that will predict how likely people are to reoffend. We suggest that you should put race in there and even allow the model to predict that all else equal, an African-American is more likely to reoffend than an otherwise exactly similar looking white person. We say, let's do that. And the reason why we say, let's do that, is that if you do this, then the weight of race is not going to be loaded onto income or anything other than race, basically. It's not going to be proxy, if you will. We say, let's allow a variable called race absorb all of the potential biases that have gone through this decision-making process that has generated our data, the garbage input. So have a variable that would absorb all the garbage in, and then when you are going to make decision, alter the data, assume that everybody's black or everybody's white, and then use that model. So mask the race. 
from the decision-making portion of the data. Because now you have this model that attributes a big part of things to race, right? A big part of the probability of reoffense. Once you're going to use that model to predict how likely a person is to reoffend, use the same race for everybody, either black or white. When you are doing that, you are effectively throwing away out of your decision-making process all of the garbage in part of the, the data. So you're not allowing it to directly affect your decision-making because at the end, you're tossing it out. But you're also not allowing it to indirectly affect things because you have it in, in the stage where it could be proxied by other things. We can't eliminate racial injustice or any kind of identity-based discrimination simply by employing technology. But we can use technology to bring about increased equity and inclusion. Juan Otero told me that using data to evaluate DEI outcomes has become an indispensable part of his strategy. Juan currently serves as Senior Vice President of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for Comcast Corporation, where he oversees operational management of the company's DE&I efforts across the corporate enterprise. He previously served as Vice President for Comcast Corporation's Federal Government Affairs team, where he was responsible for federal legislative advocacy with members of Congress and the administration. In addition, Juan sits on several national nonprofit boards, including Easter Seals, the Hispanic Federation, and the Smithsonian's Latino Center. And in terms of strategy, he specifically shared that by desegregating and democratizing data, Comcast has been able to gather the information necessary to drive positive change. It really is about disaggregating as much as you humanly can, cutting down farther and farther and farther to really get to the meat of what you're looking for, sort of that micro-targeted population. You know, building systems that are acutely workable in that space. So it's really having the capacity to go as far as you can and, frankly, constantly refreshing the data. This can't be a one-and-done snapshot. This is as many looks as possible. And there's great tools out there that can be used that you can pull. Um, the other piece is also democratizing the data. We have a situation where leaders get to see this. This isn't held at headquarters or in a box. I think we have to allow folks to be able to tap into their teams and see where am I compared to others? What's my business unit versus the other business unit? Let as many eyes on this as possible. I think for too long, the DNI data was wrapped around this cloak of almost a compliance view. And I, and I understand that. But when you're trying to make progress, you're going to have to look at it differently. You're going to have to look at it constantly. And you're going to have to look at it granularly. Democratizing and desegregating data increases transparency and efficacy within organizations. And isn't that what we want technology to do? To broaden our access and exposure? I think so. I also think it can have the opposite effect, allowing us to remain locked in our own information bubbles, also known as echo chambers, unwilling to avail ourselves of the vast array of information and ideas. Because I'm a digital tech law professor, I teach cyber law and I've written books about cyber law. So at the dawn of the digital age, because I'm old and I still remember it, and everyone was writing about how this would be such a great leveller, digital communications technology, because on the internet, no one knows you're a dog. Like you can dabble in different points of view and you can learn so much. And Cass Sunstein wrote his republic.com piece 
where he said the opposite. He basically said, no, we're all just going to get polarised. We'll just, there'll be so much information that we'll just select. And that's what's happened. And that worries me because social media facilitates that, increasingly polarised cable news networks facilitate that. That was Jackie Lipton, a law professor at the University of Pittsburgh, an attorney, founder of Ravenquill Literary Agency, a literary agent at the Tobias Agency, and the author of numerous academic texts, and the book Law and Authors, a Legal Handbook for Writers. And yes, social media and the polarized viewpoints we so often see espoused there, as well as in various news outlets, have proven incredibly detrimental to the fabric of society. Because rather than encouraging productive discourse, they can lead many of us to tune out the opinions and ideas of anyone who doesn't think as we do. Also, on the subject of social media, research suggests that it encourages antisocial behavior, heightens the likelihood of jealousy, and contributes to body dissatisfaction, even if we're going on social media sites intending to connect with others and feel good about ourselves. I asked Sharona about the correlation between insecurity and platforms like Instagram. We could all spend a lot of time unpacking the underlying economic and capitalist motivations around making people feel bad about themselves and all of the products designed to help alleviate those pressures and make you feel better about yourself. But of course, it's an asymptotic relationship, right? You're never actually going to achieve this idealized face or body. The disability study scholar, Rosemary Garland Thompson, talks about the normate, right? The idealized normal body to which we all aspire that on some level is fundamentally impossible, although some people can get closer to it than others. Or the theorists, Deleuze and Guattari, talk about the ideal face and all the deviations away from it, which is for them one of the sources of racism. So you have this kind of idealized white cisgender male face that everybody can only be a degree away from to a certain extent. But while that's all really interesting, on some level, it also doesn't matter. And we have seen this and we know this pretty broadly that you could be shown an airbrushed image of some sort of impossible to achieve body face combination of a person, right? Or you could look at somebody's beautifully curated Instagram and you can know, they can tell you and you can know for a fact that this is airbrushed, this is curated, this isn't representative, this isn't real life, that doesn't actually make you feel better about yourself. That doesn't actually make you want to achieve that ideal less for some people. So there are all of these cultural pressures on appearance. But having said that, we're seeing much broader diversity of bodies. We're seeing much wider acceptance. We're seeing less pressure on that. Now, how successful any campaign that is motivated by a company that wants you to buy something, even if they're showing diversity of body types, is something we can sit and interrogate. But I think on some levels, there has been movement. Movement or no movement, selfie or self-hatred, social media has also undeniably been a force for social justice, because it's a place where those whose stories have often been silenced can speak out and be heard. It has sparked movements, incited uprisings, and been a catalyst for everything from advocacy to also, sadly, abuse. There are experts out there on social media who are not me, and I want to be really clear that While there are ways that social media exacerbates the worst impulses of people, it also 
has been a space in which a lot of important work has been done. And I'll point you to the work of scholars like Meredith Clark and Sarah Jackson who've looked at organizing online, Black Twitter, counterpublics and communities that can affiliate and create and find connection. I also think something like, for example, the Harvard 38 debacle, where 38 Harvard professors signed a letter supporting John Komaroff, a known abuser, sexual abuser, in a way that was hugely problematic given the information they already had and given the information they did not have and the ways in which that was immediately exposed and the ways in which the overwhelming majority of them actually recanted that decision, I think is really a function of social media. Having said that, naming and shaming can work both ways, right? The scholar Melissa Click has talked about always having the worst moment of every day of your life being recorded in perpetuity and the dangers of that and the ways in which perhaps the true actions of repentance can be limited. And I think it's just a really complicated mix of things. There are reasons to celebrate the positive impacts of technology, and there are reasons to be cautious about how we utilize technology in our lives and in our work. Here's Sylvia again. I must say that my work, and here I speak as researcher rather than as activist, my work is a little bit more on the critical side, not because I like criticizing things simply because, but because I just happen to come from a research stream, which is, a, which is referred to as data justice, that investigates the fairness with which I cite Lynette Taylor, a colleague from Tilburg University here, the fairness with which people are um, visualized, tweeted and represented through data. In data justice research, unfortunately, we tend to focus a lot on how artifacts tend to unfortunately crystallize inequalities. But Sylvia remains optimistic about technology overall. So artifacts can do that. Artifacts can reinforce discrimination, but they can also be means to organize solidarity and resistance. And this is also something that I explore in part of my research. Maybe we can talk about that later. But let's not dismiss technology because technology can be an amazing means to solidarize, to build the resistance networks. One of many large-scale examples of an organization working to empower people through digital equity is Comcast's Project Up program, a $1 billion comprehensive initiative to advance digital equity and help build a future of unlimited possibilities by connecting people to the internet, advancing economic mobility, and opening doors for the next generation of innovators, entrepreneurs, creators, and storytellers. Here's Juan again. The elevator speech on Project Up is our $1 billion commitment to digital equity, to getting as many folks connected, but also letting folks, they, you know, the up is like there are no limitations to you in terms of your work. So we have you know, made this commitment with a real focus on what can we do to lift up all of these communities, and that's in the digital equity space, because as you think about whether it's entrepreneurship or the entire world has gone digital. And as we disaggregate some of these things that are holding people back, you're not going to get to that equity until people have the digital skills that they need to actually really become the innovators, to also participate in sort of the basic functions of society. It's a cross-spectrum effort, and it's something I'm really proud that we've made this commitment. 
But let me just give you a couple of stats. I think right now, just so for your listeners, 50% of low-income families lack the technology required for an online education. By 2030, 69%, the demand for workers with digital skills will increase by 69%. So this is something that, and our commitment is to reach 50 million people 10 years with a $1 billion commitment with over 1,000 community partners. Internet Essentials is part of that. That's part of that connectivity piece. That's getting folks to the internet. That's getting them the basic digital skills. But I also want to make sure that I talk about the entrepreneur stuff, equipping entrepreneurs and small businesses with the skills and resources they need to thrive. And at the same time, this is all about unlocking opportunities and pathways in technology and digital awareness. I asked Juan how he balances meeting the needs of consumers and the larger community with meeting the needs of employees and whether DEI objectives are different depending on who is being served. How do you navigate the needs of your consumers versus your employees versus sort of like the giving back that Comcast does? So I don't, you know, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think we have really doubled down, you know, in terms of digital equity as a place, we are a tech company, you're a media and tech company. So we're accentuating the positive, if you will. And that means taking a look at issues like digital divide and adoption, connectivity, and how do we move our charitable giving to that kind of direction. And through Project Up, through our Internet Essentials program, there's a myriad of work that we've been doing for a while, but now we really want to really hone into that space to ensure that we are giving back and giving back in the way that's probably the most effective for us, that makes sense. In a sense, really our sweet spot about being really a tech company that can really help close divide, create greater connectivity for the communities we serve. Hey, listeners, Zach James here partner and marketing manager of the Demystifying Diversity podcast, and I wanted to share with you some of the great things we're doing in the DEI space. Since the beginning of 2020, myself, Darylise, and our DEI team have facilitated numerous corporate trainings, engaging workshops, one-on-one coaching sessions, and so much more, both virtual and in person. To find out how you can work with us, whether you are an individual or representing an organization, school, corporation, or any other type of group seeking diversity, equity, and inclusion education, head over to demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com backslash DEI services to send us a message or to fill out our DEI survey. Darylise is a DEI subject matter expert, having interviewed over 300 people, becoming a TEDx speaker, as well as the author of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. Together, we can help you up-level your DEI skills to improve your productivity, profitability, and interpersonal relationships. So connect with us at demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com backslash DEI services and get yourself a copy of Darylise's book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. And don't forget the workbook too. Happy learning. Whether they're tech companies or not, organizations that use technology to effectively and efficiently serve their communities are going to increase connectivity. Here's Munir again. That's the power of technology to make connections, right? It's yeah. not removing the connection. I asked Munir what he valued most about technology. Won't be surprised when I say it's a way to connect. It's 
more nuanced connection. Sometimes it's, it's a way to connect one-on-one like we are. Sometimes it's indirect. Sometimes, for example, email is good because you don't really want to talk to the person because you don't have time for them. It's fine. Uh, they're busy too. So it's, it's, a, it's a mutually comfortable scenario. And sometimes you're just engaging with somebody's work that you couldn't necessarily have access to. So that's very indirect. But it's all, to me, a way to connect and engage. Yulia agrees. A common myth right now, especially as we move into the hybrid work world, is that it's very hard to connect with people in this hybrid world. And it is harder if you keep doing the same things that you've always done and you're not trying to lean into the new environment. But a key capability that is very important for kind of this micro technology is being able to fully use all of the tools that you use every day. As an example, let's take Zoom. Most people have mastered being on video and talking and screen sharing and all that stuff. But how many people actually use polls as part of their presentation? How many people use breakout rooms all the time as part of their meetings? How many people use even PowerPoint as background? That's something that very, very few people use and it's completely available to you and it could make your meetings and interactions much more impactful and much more engaging. Yulia shared that technology can be utilized as an empathy builder. We're now starting to use technology like virtual reality to be able to literally almost literally (laughs) put yourself in the shoes of somebody else and actually put on a headset and be somebody else and experience a scenario from the point of view of, of somebody else. There's actually a company called Body Swaps that lets you conduct a variety of scenarios. Like for example, giving feedback to somebody or having a difficult conversation with somebody, something like that, or being in a meeting where you're the only type of person there. And the reason it's called body swaps is because you conduct the meeting from one person's perspective, but then you literally swap bodies and then you can see a recording of yourself from somebody else's perspective. And that's why technology is so powerful to unlock these perspectives and generate empathy in an immersive way and in a way that you really don't forget versus like seeing something on a 2D screen. I mean, this, you really feel like you're in the moment in the experience. Here's Slobodan again. Basically, I think by by the definition of artificial intelligence, it's something that's supposed to be helping humans in in multiple ways uh, and making humans better and more powerful. Uh, So just by the nature of that, I've started thinking more and more about uh, really that interface between machines and and, and humans uh, and how do we kind of move move towards future with some good ideals, I guess, and good objectives. Amanda told me about the work Jubilee is doing to increase people's exposure to different perspectives and experiences. Specifically, she mentioned Jubilee's Spectrum series, a collection of videos in which individuals with a single shared experience or identity are asked to answer questions according to a numeric scale. 
those individuals then physically move to the number on the scale, the spectrum, that corresponds to their response. When watching the videos, it becomes clear that just because people have one thing in common doesn't mean they think and feel similarly. And through their movement on the scale and conversations with one another, those featured in the Spectrum series are able to build greater empathy for each other and to spark viewers to become more empathetic as well. It's an incredible series, and you really have to see it to understand the impact. So we'll include a link in the show notes so you can watch the videos for yourself. In the meantime, here's what Amanda had to say about it. I love that it helps you change your perspective on things, maybe not change your mind, but it certainly can help you change your perspective, which I think is really beautiful, especially in today's world where we're still sort of living in our echo chambers and listening to what we want to listen to and hearing what we want to hear. I think it's really cool to have a medium in which you can hear other perspectives and ideally change your own individual perspective. There are a myriad of ways we can use technology to create culture shifts. And of course, some of the most cutting-edge technological innovations that are taking place right now involve space exploration. Traveling to space can create perspective shifts in humans that then inspire them to do good work in the world. I reached out to my cousin, Rachel Lyons. Rachel is the executive director at Space for Humanity, a nonprofit organization which aims to make spaceflight available as a way to expand human perspectives, and the former vice chair of the Board of Directors of Students for the Exploration and Development of Space USA. She shared with me that she's become committed to helping humans get far enough away from the Earth that we can see things differently and become empowered to come back and transform the world. Virgin Galactic just had their inaugural space flight in July. So Richard Branson flew on there as well as a couple other people. A woman that I was actually with at an event last night, we got that we interviewed her for a space and wine event that we hosted. Her name's Sarisha. She's amazing. So they had their inaugural space flight. They haven't flown passengers since. I don't know when they'll be flying again. I think it could be this year. And then Blue Origin has flown a few flights. They started flying in July as well, just either, you know, like a few days or a few weeks after Richard Branson's flight. And they've flown, yeah, a couple times since then. I think three times since then. I'm trying to remember. I don't know their flight schedule either, but I think that they're going to probably keep doing it at least every couple months. And then everyone wants to increase the cadence, you know, like be able to do it more and more. So both of those companies are like, they're doing it. We are in the new era right now. You know, like spaceflight has become commercialized. The founder of my company just flew to space on a Blue Origin flight literally less than two months ago. Yeah. And then there's also the stratospheric balloon companies, which will be flying next year or the year after. More and more people are having access to this. and, And the time is now, which is incredible. Why is space important in terms of thinking about how to leverage technology for the benefit of humanity? Basically, um, we are working to sponsor people from all over the world to go to space commercially with companies like Virgin Galactic, Blue Origin, Space Perspective, and Worldview, which are stratospheric balloon companies. So they can go and have this overview effect experience and then come back down and, and be like seeds planted around the world sharing this perspective far and wide with their communities. The overview effect is a term coined by author and philosopher Frank White to describe the profound cognitive and emotional shift generated by the experience of seeing the Earth from space. I asked Rachel for some examples of how the overview effect might play out. 
There's so many amazing examples. Like for example, astronaut Nicole Stott, she's on our advisory board and she was also at our space and wine event last night. One thing she talked about this a few years ago, I've known her for a few years now. I'm so, so grateful, but I remember her speaking at a conference and she was like, people just throw their trash out into the trash bins, like thinking that it just disappears. Like, what do you think? Like the trash fairies are going to take it away. And, but actually it's contributing to so much trash that we have on this planet. And so like, it makes you more conscientious about your waste and about how you're living on this planet. And she's basically dedicated her life to using space as a way to shift our perspectives. And she, she actually, she's an artist, so she combines it with her art and she's gone to like children's hospitals and she's doing really amazing work. Astronaut Ron Guerin, he's also on our advisory board. He came back and I believe that he was doing on the ground efforts in Africa around clean water. And since then he's been writing about the perspective that he gained and how it can just shift things on earth. Astronaut Scott Parazinski, he came back down and he started an initiative specifically to get political leaders in the space because he saw how important this perspective is for leadership. Astronaut Anusha Ansari, she was the first Iranian woman to go to space and she is now the CEO of XPRIZE Foundation which I don't know if you've heard of XPRIZE, but basically they're creating what they call moonshot solutions to our greatest challenges. So they basically put out like, there's like different like environmental challenges and like health related challenges and like gender equality related challenges and having people create exponential solutions to these challenges. And so she's looking at it, you know, from a whole earth perspective and now this is what she's doing and they're doing world changing stuff. That's just a couple examples. That's not to say that the perspective shift made possible by viewing Earth from a different vantage point can or will solve all the problems of humanity, or that the perspective shift doesn't come with its own set of problems. I asked if people ever experience a feeling of disillusionment after coming back to Earth. You're touching on something really big because there's been astronauts that I've, I don't know if it's any that I've actually personally interviewed that have shared this with me, but I know there's been astronauts that have come back down and gone into depression or alcoholism. I heard of one a few years ago. I don't know who it was, but I know that like there's been suicide as well. And that's the thing. Yeah. Just like you said, with these paradigm shifting experiences, like it reshuffles your whole like view of of existence. And and a lot of times we need support integrating it. Like we need support and being able to be like, okay, like, yeah, like, I don't know. I just think about like some of the biggest paradigm shifting experiences that I've had and there's been times when I come back and I'm like, what the heck is the point of any of this? It's so easy to go into like, what's the point? Which on the flip side of that with support, you can go into like, this is beautiful and inspiring and this gets to be something that makes a difference in the world. But then it can also be something that like causes a lot of isolation. So we're thinking about that and talking about that a lot. And because of that integration, that's the word that we're using, helping people integrate this and into their lives in a way that doesn't make them feel like isolated or an outsider, but more so makes it feel like this gets to help them live more powerful lives. That's a really, really important part of our mission. Integration is essential to decrease the likelihood that those who go to space will struggle psychologically after returning. And when it comes to integration, that requires support, community, and human interaction. I was just talking to the founder of my company last night at the Space and Wine event, and I was specifically asking him about integration. And, you know, he just flew to space like two months ago. And I remember seeing him three days later and he was like wide eyed and being like, Rachel, everything's different. Like, I can't believe this. 
And I asked him, what's been the most supportive for you to make sense of this experience? Because that was the thing too, is like three days later, he was like, I haven't fully made sense of this. And he said that he just had dinner the night before with one of his crewmates and being able to recount the memories. I think like having a community of people who have experienced it and been there and get it. I think that's a really, really, really big part of integration. That's why we're going to have cohorts. So we basically want to sponsor full missions of people so that they can all like go and, and be like, wow, we did this together and we're here to support each other in, in implementing this as well. Whatever we're thinking about space travel or our smartphones, it's always essential to bring the technological back to the personal because technology begins and ends with humans. Here's Munir again. I think the data moves us further along, hopefully making wise and rational choices, but it's certainly not a panacea and never will be. Otherwise, we wouldn't be who we are. So even though I'm a technologist, I make all decisions based on my gut. And I I no longer even apologize for that. I make it based on intuition and I trust my own intuition. And sometimes it may take me a decade to figure out why I did something. And then the data might follow later on and I'll say, oh yeah, you were right. So yes, technology can intensify bias and yes, it can mitigate its impact. So however we employ it, let's make sure we're tuning into our intuitions while using technological innovations in ways that are in line with the values of diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility, and belonging. Can we move forward differently to foster greater equity? Even if we don't always understand fairness, we can and should demand. Let's embrace one another, single colleagues, working mothers, people of all points of view. Can we see each other through? Thank you to this episode's guests. Munir Manvoala, Alexi Altunin, Charlotte Alexander, Rebecca Tesfai, Liz Brown, Yulia Barnakova, Emma B.F., Amanda Arias, Sharona Pearl, Slobodan Vucetic, Sylvia Massiero, Stu Cranes, Sohil Gilly, Juan Otero, Jackie Lipton, Rachel Lyons, and Natalie Peterson, and to our episode sponsor, Vita Supreme. Every episode of this season of the Demystifying Diversity podcast is written, reported, and produced by me, Dara Lise Lyons, with Azaria Keys, Assistant Director of Sedwick, Co-Producer and Coordination Consultant, Leora Eisenstadt, Sedwick Director, Assistant Producer and Consultant, Zach James, Co-Collaborator and Marketing Manager, Paul Kondo, Assistant Producer and Editor, Jimmy Goodman at Leopard Studio, audio technician and consultant, Stuart Kreintz, production and development assistant, and Sunny Taylor, content editor and creative collaborator. The music you heard is Demystifying Diversity, an original composition, the lyrics of which were written by me, Dara Lise Lyons, in collaboration with Ramon Beeftink, who also created all the music and performed vocals and instrumentals. If you'd like to explore these topics outside of the podcast, pick up a copy of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity, wherever books are sold. Join us next week for a question and answer episode. And in the meantime, let's keep trying to make this a better, more inclusive world.